Hello, and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London. Hosted by Architects Fourth Space and supported by Campari, the Negroni Talks were born out of a frustration with the mannerisms of much architectural debate. Intended as a provocation, the talks were set up to emulate the spirit of the lively and opinion-driven exchanges that took place in the European cafe culture of the fin de siècle. Food, drink and arguments go hand in hand and the talks provide an arena for freestyle conversations around architecture. This episode was recorded as part of the On the Road tour where Negroni Talks left London to discover how the politics of architecture plays out in other parts of the UK. And next we come to Christiana Macario, who is delivering home for the council and people of Bristol as development manager for Forum Homes. So we need to ask them some important questions, like uh, what did politics ever do for you? And does it help build great cities? And did you ever want to be Prime Minister? I hear the notes Not quite yet, but soon. Um, First note, you will have seen this is going to be recorded, uh, but that makes it important that we do get you on the mic uh, when you want to say something. So there's no waiting, you just have to get the mic in your hand, basically. Grab it if necessary. Not of me, of somebody else. Um, you are welcome to go up to the bar, do have a drink as you go, uh, and uh, I think that's it. We've got the speakers, you've got your Negronis, I believe, yes. And uh, all the ingredients in place for a good night. Yeah. Let's get started with Sam. Crikey. You've got a mic, Sam. I can do. Press the button up. Thank you. Okay. Okay, good. So I was kind of joking about planning. That's the sort of where you see politics and architecture meet. But, I mean, you must have seen a fair few refusals. Is it, is it difficult? Is it... Is the politics good for planning? Is it good for buildings? Good question. Um, in terms of refusals, we've, we've actually got one. What? I, we've, got, we've got a 99.9% success rate, so I'll take, take that. Um, and I, I think in some ways that's a result of the process that we try and go through. So um, one of my kind of comments would be, uh, you know, we need to embrace the political processes within which the planning system works. And, um, you know, so many of the projects we're working on are community-led housing schemes. And I think that's about giving political agency and authority back to uh, communities and local people to determine the sort of applications they want to see, in the sort of places they want to see them, and to be involved and participate directly in the design and delivery of them. And so that's a sort of fairly unique set of circumstances, um, which isn't common across all projects. But what we do see is that um, when we engage very closely with um, groups of people there, uh, their passion and commitment is echoed and supported by local councillors, ward councillors in Bristol City, which is sort of fantastic. Um, the council in Bristol are renowned for being fairly radical and giving land to um, organisations and groups such as this, you know, community land trusts or uh, local neighbourhood development trusts. And so they have this opportunity, which is really rather unique. And um, what we've seen is that those projects are overwhelmingly supported by the local population to the extent that they've had zero objections. Um, yet, when they confront the planning system, they headbutt it straight on. 
And so many times we see that the local authority uh, planning department seek to refuse them on many different grounds. And so we're constantly scratching our heads about how do we overcome this? How do we communicate the positivity of the developments being uh, put forward? And again, what we've had to do on almost every project like this is be political. And we've engaged directly, again, with the ward councillors, and we've called uh, projects into committee. And I think it's where um, we've been lucky that local politics has then really worked for us. The democratic system has been effective. Uh, the committee members have unanimously voted these projects in. In West Dorset, in Bridport, the biggest co-housing project in the UK, unanimously supported by the committee, and they said, we think this is the future of housing in the United Kingdom. It's sustainable, it's zero carbon, it's everything that we should be doing. And yet, the planning team could not cope with it being an alternative model, because people weren't going to park their cars outside their front door. If that's the planning system that we've got, then I think it needs to change. Um, a very positive view of, of uh, politics, less so planning, of course. Uh, Christiana, uh, politics, a force for good or a force for bad? So, uh, on architecture. So we'll start that, with... Binary, though, well, 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 it's that, totally do binary. Mean, do you mean as is or potentially? Oh, as is. Ooh. Good, we'll do potentially shortly after. Um, as it is... Is politics a force for good or bad on architecture? We just have to do a generalisation, okay? Generalisation is required. So, a force for good, hands up. That is definitely not an overwhelming majority. Could possibly be A uh, Force for bad. Definitely abstainers. <laughs> Prevaricators. Prevaricators. <laughs> Are we going to get these back? Or shall I yeah, keep shouting? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that doesn't come out. It's probably that. Maybe unplug the speaker. I mean, that defeats the office. Yeah. Sorry. Do you like it stands next to me? Mine was working. Good thinking, okay. Sam. Spaces and you know meet the housing crisis. So 
without politics, quorum homes wouldn't exist. And you know, without quorum homes, we wouldn't have um, this unique, unique model we're working within where, um, I mean, I'm not sure if, if people know how it works, but we basically um, use council-owned land um, to develop housing. And by not having to purchase the land, like a traditional development, it means we can prioritize um, the quality of delivery, we can prioritize 40% um, uh, affordable housing in our city center side, so at least policy compliant housing, we can increase uh, the number of affordable housing in our suburban side, so basically across all of our developments we're delivering around 50% affordable housing. Um, all net carbon zero homes, all delivering 20% biodiversity net gain. So all of these things we wouldn't be able to do viably without uh, being able to use council on land. So I think in terms of politics and, and how it works within foreign homes, it's a very successful model. Um, obviously with YTL it was very different because that's a whole different category of development, isn't it? So it's 380 acres. Um, it is the largest development in the southwest, so there was quite a huge political influence into bringing that development forward. Was I think if it wasn't as big um, or single owned, um, which is what the sort of uniqueness of the browser site is, um, it would have, wouldn't have moved so quickly through the planning process. So obviously, politicians backing um, the development and regeneration of the area there. Um, it, it would have possibly taken ages for the panties. I mean, it, it did take ages to put the um, the Crips Hatchway New Neighborhood Framework together, in which within the the Brabazon Development City. So, um, and it's in South Gloucestershire Council. Whilst all of the Grand Homes um, schemes are within Bristol City Council. Yeah. Um, so there are quite a lot of differences between the two, but I think. Both of them, if they have one thing in common, is that they are backed by politicians in either place and they are being pushed forward, which is a good thing. So I guess I've had it easier than most. <laughs> so I think what we're, hearing, what we're hearing from both you and Sam is that for delivering social outcomes, it's absolutely vital. It's, it makes all the difference of ownership democratic will. Has anyone else got examples of, of where that has made a difference to a project they know or within a community that they know? I do have an interesting question yeah. uh, to, to add to that though. So I think the challenge with that is how does the influence go beyond a politician's term? It's all great if it's within you know the same term of someone being you know a councillor or, or a member and they're pushing it but what happens after they're not, or if they're replaced and someone has a different view or packs something else. Yeah. I think that's where the challenge so, sits. So as one time there, George, you have to say something yeah. about this. Um, With the oh. oh, okay. I think there are huge positives in both the Whitehill housing scheme as opposed to another party. And, um, <laughs> And I encourage them to go from 2,500 to 6,000 homes because if you're going to use valuable land like that, one should use it as intensively as possible. And I think that's been received well politically. I have a real problem, though, 
with the leverage. We should be, when, when that sort of thing happens, we should be leveraging really good communications in terms of connections, cycle routes, and all those things out of the planning process. And I have a real, real problem with the definition of affordable. Affordable is generally not affordable to the majority of the population. And we should be looking at the percentage of social housing rather than affordable housing. And I think you agree. I agree. And when, when I said affordable, I meant officially affordable, if you know what I mean. Not, not to actually, us affordable, actually, actually affordable. Yes, so yeah, yeah. within, when I said, let's say, 40%, within that 75% of that is social rented housing. And 25% of it is shared ownership or first homes, and it's all based on um, policy requirements. I mean, that is a political definition of all Yes. And it's, it's one of those misnomers at the best lies at worst because people think, oh, affordable homes, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah you don't only have to have 80 grand, turns out, to get that house. I mean, that's in London, I don't know about you. But um, what, what about the thing of. Um, uh, legacies. So if you leave office, that's it. The Branson hangar goes into uh, it becomes the arena or whatever. You know, things change. Politicians move on. Politicians get chucked out. Because, you know, that was my point. Thing. I think that was your point. Yeah. Do you do you see that as a problem? The short termism potentially of politics. Yes, I think the most successful cities in Europe in terms of environment and continual development that is producing the right thing have got longer term governance. Um, so four year terms, um, maybe as long as this country could possibly stand, but in many countries you just couldn't produce a tramway system or make serious infrastructure changes within a four-year term, because all you've done is dug up the place and then you've voted out. And um, so I think we need to look at the governance. I know we've recently had a, uh, you know, we've, we've recently had a poll that decided not to continue with having a mayoral system in, in Bristol, which may have been a poll on, on mine and Marvin's record, I don't know. But um, I think the danger of the barrel system as we have it in Bristol is that you do go from one extreme to another extreme and it's very, very disruptive and that is um, acts against good things happening. Jules, do you see the short termism? Yeah, where did it come from? I mean, actually when you're working for a, a public company, companies with shareholders, you do often end up with, you know, oh, quarterly results of, you know, reporting, they'll do something completely different, let's dump that. You know, there's short-term journalism in and out of politics, isn't there? Well, there is, but I think there's nuances to politics, isn't there? There's um, politics with a big P, which is the ideologically driven government that's in charge of the day and how they envisage the planning system. And I'm talking about it from the planning perspective as opposed to an, as opposed to an architectural Perspective because that's the arena that I work in. So there's there's the bigger P, which is driving how the legislation is formed, what it wants us to do, how the government sees 
planning moving forward. So at this point in time, we have a government that is ideologically driven to developing housing at all costs. Um, it's enabling the loss of a range of other land uses at the expense of housing. It's very much a developer and I think financial focused government at this point in time. And then you go from that to a local level of politics where it could be it operates at a local level and it could be quite different. You're still operating at a local authority level within the constraints set by central government, housing targets, housing figures, housing land supply figures, having to, to meet those, sustainability, building beautifully, whatever that means to whoever's doing it. And then you have at a, at a, at a more local level, you have the politics of local communities, as Sam was touching on, and the politics of officers, and the politics of members, and and then below that you have your own politics, your own, your own views, your own ideologies, your way of seeing the world influences and affects how you deal with things. Coming back to the issue of... No, I said we throw it wide. It's the whole... Everybody's it decisions. Is. Every, it's everything is imbued with politics, because at the end of the day, politics is about your own set of ideologies and your own set of principles. And we're all working within a political framework, whatever that framework is, whether it's one that you set yourself or one that you have to work within. Um, coming back to the corporates, I think the driver for a corporate organisation, actually for most organisations, is maximising assets, which is either land or money. And that's what will drive them. There are developers out there, there are individuals, there are groups out there that Sam clearly works with that aren't driven primarily by maximising an asset, but there are so many that are. And that ideology, that political ideology, if you, if you want, where you're answering to shareholders or you're answering to the pound, creates a very different form of development and a very different way of striving to achieve development. And I don't think, I think that is short-termism. They don't give a toss about legacy, they don't give a toss about quality, they just want to get something through the system as quickly as they can. They're not going to stick around to see it when it's built, they're not going to live in it, they're going to live opposite it, they're not going to be anywhere near it. So there is, I think, a degree of detachment, um, and that is ideologically driven because it's driven by the desire to make money for shareholders and others than themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the ones where they stick around, where perhaps I've realised we may be strange politics, but I think it's still no, very I think it's, it's all it's all politics. I mean, you know, it's not so pension about. funds or longer term developers who manage their own assets, and all those things are perhaps a very healthy, far more healthy models. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because a pension fund is there to make it's money. Still about money and yeah, taking it out it's, of it's the system. About, it's there to make money to support the pension fund to pay people's pensions at the end of the day as well as people's salaries. So it always comes back to a very to a financial driven model in that sense. I think there are definitely developers out there that are interested in legacy, that are passionate about quality, that are passionate about creating places and spaces for people as opposed to profit. Yeah. And I think they should be celebrated in a way. Paul if you've met many of them. I think you probably I think you probably have. Do you, I don't know if that mic is that an okay mic? Is it kosher? Um, oh, it is now. Great <laughs> So, well, quite a lot of quite a lot of stuff in that. I mean, 
what I was reflecting on, because I want to go completely off that. Completely off that. I can manage. I can manage the bank mics most of the time. Keep the other mic away. It's switched off. Yeah. Is you know, if, if you look at the history of great architecture, it used to be that great architecture was either built by incredibly wealthy rulers or religious institutions, which were also incredibly wealthy and sold everybody out. So they built some fantastic, beautiful buildings, um, but there was there was a price to that, they, you know, uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, we we don't have people in the same way wanting to build great monuments. It's apart from George, of course, to their <laughs> to, to, to their sort of own egos or to to their you know necessarily to their sort of religious greatness uh, in the same way because the resources aren't like that. But as we know, the housing system live in the stuff that they build, um, and they wouldn't build stuff for themselves to live in anything like the things that they would build uh, for others. Um, and, you know, there was a, a really interesting uh, film, I think released about four years ago, uh, called The Push, about, effectively about Blackstone, um, and the way in which they were monetizing uh, buildings across the world, and using that to create value by undermining people's living standards. And of course, that isn't the sort of, that isn't the sort of investment we want, but you, you can get um, amazing architecture and amazing buildings, but actually it's probably that you do need the support of the political class to do that. Um, I mean, they, they don't take as long as the Sagrada Familia to build these days, but uh, where, where have we seen like huge efforts going in to build amazing buildings? It's sport <laughs> at the moment, isn't it? It's, you know, we've got to build our Olympic park. You know, Maybe I was watching... We had a, more international... I mean, I, people I, I, have to live as long as they can, at least 75 I mean, going years. Back, going back to the point that Sam was making is, is that the more in which design, and, and I, you know, the problems we made just now as well, the, the more in which local people, people are going to live in the homes are involved in the design. And it's not just about the buildings, it's, it's more critically about the spaces between them as well. Um, then you will have, you know, much more attractive places because people are investing not in the financial return or the political return. They're invested in actually living in those localities and in, in those communities. And that is politics. You know, local people coming together to meet a community need is politics. And therefore you can't, you know, separate politics from, from architecture in that way. I like this. It sounds like politics is an antidote to money. I, that's not how I've read it before. But Sam... I mean, maybe I'm naive or we're lucky with some of our clients, but the only FTSE company that we're working with who are building houses at the moment are really interesting because they came to us um, saying that they wanted to be able to deliver long-term affordable homes for NHS workers, not because they wanted to, but because their shareholders were demanding it of them. And I just wonder whether or not politically, culturally in the UK at the moment, we're beginning to see a bit of a shift, that there's sufficient resentment towards the government of the, the economic politics that we're, we're seeing, the, the financialization of property, the treatment of homes as a portfolio, an asset class, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of anger around these things, and I think it is trickling down. It does put 
percolate down to people who invest in major companies. And I think people are beginning to demand better, to want more, to see the need for ethical investment and uh, not accepting anything less. And so I was quite excited by this policy that came to us and said that. And, you know, we are lucky, and there clearly are others out there that are doing bad things. <laughs> you know, maybe this points to a bit of a future. Yeah, is it? Oh, two of you have seen that future. Just to carry on from Paul and, and Sam, really, it's about planning and architecture to an extent. It should be about creating places and creating communities or adding to communities. How many sites have we all worked on where you're building something at the loss of community garages or where people go and get their car fixed or a, a little retail warehouse or an industrial estate where people can go and buy glass to repair windows or they can pick up anything, you know, anything. All of those facilities are being lost at the expense of this ideological drive to build housing yeah. at all cost. And we have a housing crisis and we need to address it, but not at all costs. How much, how much of our city is now being lost to, uh, you know, the, our industrial areas, our employment areas, our green spaces are being lost to housing? Where are people Bristol will end up being a city. This is a radical statement, and it's probably not true, but I'm going to say it anyway. Bristol is going, to, is going to end up being a city that you live in and you do nothing else in because our sports facilities are going. We're having to Communities are having to fight to keep those. Our green spaces are going. Our, um, our, you know, where people can work are going. And, and that is an ideological drive through rights to change offices to resi through the loss of employment sites to resi and the government effectively simplifying the process to enable that to happen although the, one of the latest rounds of pd rights is making that slightly harder but um it's this constant ideological drive to create housing at all costs and what we need to do is start thinking about what those costs are and the value the real value of developing housing should never just be financial. It should be about community. It should be about life. It should be about work-life balance. It should be about being able to build housing and then you can walk your kids to school and then walk to your employment. At lunchtime, you can go to the shops or go to the park or go to the gym or go for a swim at your local pool and then go back to work and then walk and get your kids and go home. It should be about community. You, you do everything in a short area, loud out. No, I'm not saying that, but it's about livable communities. Oh, I, I, how 15 how minutes many city? of us Definitely. don't want to live in a suburb where all you can do is sit in your house and there's nothing else to do? You've, You've got, got to get in a car haven't you? to drive somewhere. I don't want that. I want, I want to live in a city, in a society that gives me as much as I need. And I don't mean in the financial sense. I mean in a in the sense of having a fulfilled life where there is everything kind of that's within easy access. This city is starting to become an area of ghettos that just have single uses. And we're losing the fundamental character of parts of our city. And um, Gorham Homes are actually, you know, I, I, had, I had a look at your website and I was really impressed with some of the stuff that I saw on there. And, and having a chat with you tonight, Christiana, it's, it's, it's actually quite 
it, you know, I, I'm really pleased to see that you're putting communities at the heart of what you do, and it's not just about that pursuit of profit at all costs. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. I should, I should let somebody else. <laughs> I'm going to come to that a bit later. I'm I, I, I don't want to uh, lose my train of thought, because I think I fully understand what you say. I mean, I am someone that lives here and wants the exact same thing. But going back to sort of the first point, even if it's all about money for some, I don't think it has to be either or. I think people can make their money and then at the same time benefit the community through making their money. I don't think it should be an either I do everything the way I want to do it to make my profit and go away or I want the legacy and I'm managing the asset and I'm operating the asset, etc. I think you can have both and maybe that's where the sort of magic um, area is where people can make their money and they can make their profit, but at the same time, everyone else benefits from it as well. I don't know if this is some sort of utopian uh, view, but I don't think it's impossible. And I think the, the Brabazon development is a good example of that because they are developers. They ultimately want to make money and they need to make money, but at the same time, they will be tenants in it themselves. They will be operating it. They will be there for the next 25 to 30 years. So everyone else will benefit throughout as well. Um, but I think going back to having communities involved, I actually think that's one of the biggest things that needs to evolve during through the planning system. I don't think engagement, the way that it's done at the moment, is inclusive or diverse enough. I think people that engage and attend these sort of community consultation meetings and are involved in co-designing and can go on the website and look in the planning portal are not the people that are going to be living in those houses necessarily. I think because when we are saying we're building a high percentage of politically affordable housing, those people that are going to live in it are the people on the housing list that have no home. So I don't think those are actually people that do get engaged through the process. I think the neighbors and they get a notification um, that something I is being Paul, built. Paul had some interesting uh, points about neighbors, didn't you, and, and the planning system. Um, Thanks, Sam, our runner. Can I oh, sorry, was there more to say? I thought you were kind of winding up. Go no, on. no, sorry, sorry. I, I do think the main problem is that the people actually engaged are not the people that should be engaged. And I think that's a fundamental problem of the planning system, because even if it's considered successful because it's been through community engagement, who, who is the community that's being engaged? Is it the community that already has a house and lives there, or is it the community that's moving in and that's actually going to be living in it? And I'll throw a, a crazy idea out there, but maybe planning should be determined like um, a criminal offense trial with a jury because um, it's, it's being decided by a random selection of the society that represents everyone, um, and it's not, you know... Do you not think councillors look a bit like a jury? Hmm? Yeah, that's the no, I, well, yeah, I, don't, I don't think so. I think these are all people that are politicians. Yeah. They all have different agendas, and everyone has a different agenda and a different sort of opinion they need to... Though we know from Jules everybody's got politics. Yeah. Still, we would be random. You, you discussed, right? It had, it had shops, 
It didn't have a swimming pool. There was a swimming pool planned, but never built. There was a cinema planned, but never built. Bars were built. There were, you know, youth centres, community centres. There was a factory built right next to it, so we could all, we all could all have somewhere to work if we want to work in the factory. But actually, that whole community collapsed economically because it was aimed at one type of person, and also it was built at incredibly low density, right? And that low density meant that when when demographics changed and the population started to fall, kids left home. You had instead of families in houses, you had you know one elderly person in a house. There wasn't the money to sustain the shops and the pubs. And you see the pubs demolished and replaced with houses. You see the shops demolished and replaced with houses. You see the factory closed, and then the jobs that we're all going to work to disappeared. And also, a lot of the facilities that were never built. I mean, in some communities, they're fighting against things being closed. The communities never had them built in the first place. And so there is a danger that the, the, this idealistic dream of a perfect community can fall apart when it hits reality. And, you know, we, we need to address, I mean, as George has said, this issue is about density. And density, I don't mean height. Some of the densest communities in this city are two stories. Um, you know, that's how the Victorians uh, their communities. Um, and a lot of other issues to think about. You could put in, I lived in there, it had lots and lots of green space. It was all shit green space. In fact, it was called, they were called green deserts because in the end, they just ended up as places where people parked their cars or where dogs shat on them because they weren't in any way tended or looked after or, or managed or, or maintained. So there has to be thought given, not just to what looks really good in, you know, in principle and what you said, you know, is in principle. I mean, I always want the choice not to have to spend all my time with the same group of people. Uh, I find that, you know, I quite like the anonymity sometimes in, in, in the city. And, you You've got to go to the local shop. You've got to go to the local cinema. Uh, cinema. You've got to go to the local swimming pool and work locally. I think that would my head in. But the choice of that I think is a fantastic is a fantastic thing, and it make it makes a great deal of sense. But you have to look at things that are like what is the social mix of these areas? You don't want an areas to be all rich people. You don't want them to be all middle class people or poor people. You want to have a real mix so that you know you can sustain the community organizations uh, that, that grow up and having lived through an area where all of that collapsed the economic infrastructure collapsed the social infrastructure collapsed it was a paradise on on the plans on the maps you know and everything else but when you lived there it, it just completely fell apart because there were wider things that weren't considered got a contribution here oh gosh um Paul, you carried on saying so much, I can't remember exactly what point you were making that I was going to respond to. But um, the point that I want to, do want to make is that, um, um, as I see it, the planning system in this country is too flexible. Um, we have so many exemplars uh, in across Europe where planning systems are very rigid, 
Um, I understand the Dutch planning system very well because I'm half Dutch. Um, and um, the plan becomes a legal document. Um, my friends in Amsterdam do not understand the whole appeal process and the fact that I can earn huge amounts of money by being an expert witness because that system just doesn't exist. The planning, the planning system in this country is um, ridiculously expensive for everyone um, and it doesn't produce a good outcome. Um, so the whole process of um, public consultation happens um, in advance of a plan being drawn up, and that becomes a legal document. So massing and um, usage um, gets written in, and, and, and that becomes fixed. Um, whereas here, it's constantly flexible. It's this moving beast that um, costs everybody loads of money, and we don't get a good outcome as, as the end result of it. And yes, there's ticking boxes here and there and everywhere, and it doesn't actually achieve what we want things to achieve. So, sorry. Couldn't yeah, quite remember exactly thought. what Thank I was you. Trying to well, it was it was a good it was a good point. If you just put it on the table, yeah. that's fine. Can you say something. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, Pippa. Oh, oh Sam. Sam. Uh, I just Whoever. um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask, throw out a random question because I was thinking about this title is not so much about housing, which we are probably all on the same page with, but about architectural style and the politics of that, because I find it very strange that. English people are so afraid of modern architecture um, when they don't go around in a horse and carriage. You know, they're not afraid of modern design in other spheres. And I just wanted to throw it out to our speakers. Why are we so afraid of modern architecture? And why, what is this weird connection, especially amongst right-wing people, with really old-fashioned architecture? That's exactly what I wanted to pick up on. I mean... Well, <laughs> I, um, I think it's fascinating drawing together some of these threads. I mean, in the, in the 20th century, it seems as though architects were seen to have committed abysmal crimes in the United Kingdom, right? So, you know, I think our, the, the perception of architects and of post-war design is poor. And I think that's left us in this really, really difficult position in the 21st century as architects. I think it feels as though the system is now hostile against um contemporary architecture in, in a very big way. And, um, you know, I think in continental Europe, it feels as though there's still a belief in a better future. There's a genuine vision that's long-term committed and thinks that it is possible to uh, implement good, positive, strategic change in a kind of modernist view. I think the UK is anodyne, and we're seeking to pull our is it, is it possible that if you submitted your plans in, in feet and inches... Except for football stadiums. Feet and inches, you would... hand proposals for simple projects versus submitting them drawn on a computer in a, you know... The exact same scheme, the proposal plans went through because the plans looked and said, oh, that looks old-fashioned and nice. You know, we have to... We find ourselves stripping 
our drawings back of any detail to allude to quality design, just so that you know, the most basic things go through, the more complex do not. The culture that we exist within today in the United Kingdom troubles me, and I think as architects, we, we are ideas people. I think politics is about ideas, I think it's about change, it's about positivity, it's about the ability to do things to create a better future. And I think we have to hold on to that, but somehow engaging at a community level to regain some of that agency, to empower other people to have a voice and allow ourselves, or get ourselves back into a position of trust within the public and therefore the planners. Pippa, did you want to just do a comeback on that before we... I, I was once a town councillor. I was once mayor of Froome. And Free. the worst, most overused term that mm. I heard at planning committees at Mendip, and I'm sure you hear it at Bristol as well, in keeping. Oh, the dread term is so depressing. Um, but, and it should be outlawed. Yeah, I mean, I do worry about architects. They, I, when I started uh, as a journalist in architecture about 20 years ago, people were obsessed, oh, nobody likes flat roofs. I mean, that isn't modernism. Anyway. Yeah. It was great. I was going to raise something similar because... Um, uh, you know, there's there's a question to go out to some of the speakers and people in the audience in terms of the politics of style, as you were talking about, and politics of architecture. And, you know, on the type of Smith kind of um, uh, driven polemic, the definition of beauty becomes quite important. And I think there's a whole issue beauty and the sublime where you know there can be something very English about the idea of beauty the picturesque and everything and the sublime is a little bit trickier for English people um, and that's, what they <laughs> that's what I was going to come on to and this is the question I'm going to maybe throw out is that is this new politics actually a kind of form of fascism <laughs> okay, that was a quick answer, Christiana. Thank you. Well, I think that goes back to who is making these decisions, because earlier I talked about the the planning system being under resourced or junior um, case officers making decisions. So, who is actually going to spend the necessary time to actually approve these modern or non-modern or you know, it, we have to go back to who is actually deciding um, these proposals, uh, whether modern or not. If, if there isn't the confidence within the planning system to push for something modern or approve something modern, then who's going to decide? Because I think that's another problem. I think there is a big indecisiveness um, around the whole planning system where there, there is a struggle for actual, you know, decision-making that is backed by people to come out. And I think going back to the sort of flexibility of the planning system that, that, the, um, that you were talking about, um, I, I mean, I'm not against flexibility because the world is changing. We can't sign a legal document and assume it's going to work in five, ten years' time. Three years ago, the planning system had no idea what living in a would be so actually changing the system to fit what we go through as a as a world needs 
to be there, but it has to be backed by people able to make decisions, basically. Hands up, I probably use that phrase to clients. But, but I think it's really important that buildings sit well within their context, and that doesn't mean they have to replicate what's there. And I think some of the best architecture today is modern architecture that responds to where it is and its situation. We can look out of this door and we can look at Millennium Square, which is not good architecture and is not good placemaking. And we can look across the docks and look at Wapping Wharf, and that is. And Wapping Wharf much better responds to the context of dockside. So I don't think in keeping necessarily means it has to replicate or it has to be pastiche, but I think it has to, it has to respond to what's there. And, but it has to move, move it forward. I don't think you can keep, I agree, you cannot keep harking back to the past. But we do have a duty to, re, to respect and protect our heritage. And our, heritage, our architectural heritage is, is really important to the context of where we live. It creates an identity. It creates character. It creates a starting point for Hello. Good quality architecture. And I think, going back to what you said, Sam, you and all the other architects in here, you, all of the architects, have a responsibility to sell architecture because people are fundamentally afraid of change. That's the issue. So you, it's incumbent upon architects, designers, urban designers, landscape architects to really sell the schemes, to sell the story to make people feel comfortable with that and not to terrify them because community consultation can draw out fear and can can exacerbate fear as much as it can in Can I just can I there was a point here a moment ago. Have you still got it? No. Okay. Just, just, I have one little thing to what you were saying. I'll speak loudly if you don't to worry. Um, the the problem is that the erosion of skills in planning as policy and, 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 and also the um, erosion of architectural politicising of um, um, projects means that if more people who are unqualified to have say, oh that's not in keeping, or that's not right, becomes a very subjective unqualified view and this is the point I was making about fascism. Okay, I'm just going to pass the mic over. On the fascism note. Ahaya, quick um, note. You were just saying that all the architects in the room should be selling the architecture. Now, I know that mainly the topic was around the politics in the UK. But when you're looking at environments and nations where open dialogue and democracy is lacking or absent, what chance do these architects have to really sell anything? Thank you. Mm, oh, good. I've got two mics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what chance? Uh, so let's go abroad. Uh, who could tell us about how it is elsewhere getting things through with politics? Oh, sorry. I don't know what happens abroad. <laughs> uh, in Cyprus, there isn't much of a planning system at all, so everyone builds whatever they want. And if people like it, they like it. If they don't, then they don't. But 
goes back to what we were saying earlier about who is the, who are the people making the decisions then? Who are the people that are saying whether it's in keeping or, or it isn't? And I think it's worth saying that architecture doesn't necessarily mean um, what the building looks like in terms of its facade or whether it's in keeping or pastiche or whatever. I think through community um, engagement, we find that people don't care as much about what it looks like rather than how it, it, it would be lived in or how it would be used during the day. I mean, personally, that's what I mostly care about. Sorry? Yields per square foot. I mean, <laughs> if, you look, you know, if, you know, if we're talking more widely, you know, a lot, a lot of developers are going to say, how much yield am I going to get? You know, how much is it going to cost me per square foot to build it? And how much per square foot am I going to get back from it? And it, it doesn't matter how wonderful the architect is, if the architect's working to a, a budget. brief yeah. and a budget... It's, it's who pays the piper. But people might be willing to pay more to live in a, in a beautiful place, won't they? Thanks. Um, so Sam, Sam started off the evening talking about the community-led housing he's been involved in and talked about his experience of growing up somewhere which was designed by somebody other than the people that were living there, I guess, and, 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 and the sort of failures. No, exactly, but, but I, I'm wondering whether there is a way of enabling more opportunities for people to, to take responsibility for designing their own communities in the way in which Sam is describing. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of conscious that City Council is giving very small fragments of land away to community housing developments, but actually all the big sites, you know, maybe go to Gorham Homes or to other sorts of council housing. It's kind of interesting that I imagine that the brief you've got at Gorham Homes is, is you know, to provide good housing, but also to provide a, a sort of value to the council in, in, in that they're not saying, you know, let's try something radical, let's give people an opportunity who are excluded from the housing market to try and do, do something which is genuinely kind of community-led at a big scale. And, and I'm kind of, I'm just sort of interested whether if you start to take the very small developments that that we, we know as sort of co-housing, community-led developments, what happens if you apply that sort of principle uh, to, to a sort of larger development? And there, there are international examples, but there's, there's absolutely no examples in this country at all where that happens. I mean, there's, there, there's, two, there's two examples in this city which could become large-scale, which, which have grown out of community-led. One is uh, the development in starting in the area around Glencoyne Square, but what, what happened then is suddenly the development trust that's promoting that suddenly finds it can't lever in the resources to actually deliver it, even with free council land. The other one is the scheme in Knoll West, which potentially also could be very large, that we can make with the building of properties between existing properties and around them, which has identified over a 1,000 potential plots just in that one estate. And actually, there are lots of 1930s estates around the country where that model potentially could be, could be rolled out. But I've talked to a number of community organisations about taking on bigger developments, and they've said, no, can we start with a small one first? I won't name it, but one area, we offered quite a large site for mixed use for a community-led development, and they said, no, can we do a scheme of eight houses? Because it was just too frightening. 
Um, and also, it was about how, without capital resource to start with, how, apart from land, but isn't that, how do they leave it in? It's a political decision, not just about the size of the plot, but about how you split it up. I mean, typically large plots are split up for housing anyway. So why... Okay, massive plots are typically split up for housing, going to different developers. So why not, why not split up a larger site, set out some of the basic rules? I mean, that... Maybe that was already done. Yeah, well, there's, there's great examples of that in, in Berlin, aren't there, of, of urban-based community... I can't remember the name of it now, but urban-led community development taking over large sites. And I think in, in the outskirts of Paris as well, similar sort of model where basically communities redeveloped or developed the whole of those sites. And so it can happen, but it, as you said, it hasn't happened in this country yet. I mean, what, what I... There are a couple of strands here of what people are talking about. It feels as though having long-term political stewardship of uh, cities, towns, land um, is essential. So somebody's got a view beyond their own term. And then I think secondly, what I find interesting within the sort of political landscape and the cultural landscape that we find ourselves in is, is one of sort of fast action, fast politics, disruptive technologies decentralized modes of finance and decision-making. And I think if we started to apply some of those same principles on a local level within a well-organized, long-term strategic plan, we might be able to pull together the best of uh, you know, long-term thinking and also quick engagement of the right people in the right place using the right methods that they're comfortable of using through the powers of technology. So I think... You know, I, I, I find myself writing and thinking about how, as architects, we can embrace disruptive technologies and processes in a positive way um, to ensure, you know, good change. Just quickly, okay. is that there, there is in the city an organisation which is owned by the community, controlled by the community, which which has developed huge sites in the city is called the council, yeah. right? And, you know, it's where we come back to politics. If you look up, most of this city is owned or has at some point in the time been owned by the council. I mean, it's what, you know, Gorham is set up by the council. You could argue, if you want a wider view of community than just the people who live in the few streets around you, it's the city. And the only organisation which is theoretically I mean, you can have a lot of debate about democracy and how effectively it works by the people of the city. It is the council. The fact that the council changes politically is a decision of the people of the city, not of the council. It, people say, well, we've had enough of them. We want somebody, we want somebody else. That's absolutely right. That's what, that's what politics is. But the council has been here for over 800 years. And the city that we've got around us, which most of us actually quite love, it's got its failings, is a product of 800 years of community governance. I've been told to cut off, so I'm just going to go in. I was going to try, like, touch on points that you made about like diversity in architecture and what you're saying about how architects need to do interesting things, but to change it in a similar way that did earlier I was going to talk about the politics of architectural education. I did my part one 
and I had absolutely no choices in what module I was going to do the entire time I was at university. Um, we worked like 90 hour weeks in our third and fourth years and maybe 60% of my friends on my course now no longer work in architecture. I'm, I'm an urban designer, so my friends are in or just completely different fields. So I don't know if anyone saw the um, ARB research or ARB um, article recently about um, changing the whole part one, part two, part three, because the um, method of education in architecture hasn't changed for like nearly 50 years and is incredibly inaccessible to people. Like there's also an, an absurd myth that I don't know but that all architects are rich and <laughs> I know but there's, there's lots of um, rules that I didn't realise that like all RIBA um, charter studios should be paying their part ones at least the, the living wage which I was not on when I was a part one and neither were any of my colleagues um, so I don't know if anyone had any thoughts about how we should be changing architectural education to make it more accessible can I just say I'm one of those people as well where I did my part one and then realized, oh my god, architects aren't rich and they also most of the time can't do anything they want because someone else tells them what to do and they don't get enough money for at least 15 years or something. So I never became an architect actually. So I, I do understand you and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think it means a shake-up. I think there's a lack of... Um, um, ethical responsibility. I think it's something we've touched on the talks in the past. Um, I am a co-owner of Ombra, and where we do the original Negroni talks, and got a small practice. We try to make sure that we have a sustainable office where people value working there. It's having um, really skilled people from overseas and the education they've had in making action rather than the binds of a kind of British system. So in, in, in an answer to the, the politics of the architecture thing, having seen all the architecture, the AA sort of um, the, the, that kind of money talks you know, where there's big fees and, you know, that sort of thing. You kind of wonder, or I do, um, and I think any young architect or any architecture student should wonder, what is the politics of architectural education, as you say, because if you are getting one, two, and three, erosion of the, the kind of... Um, Professionalization of the architect. Actually, actually, go all the way back to what we're actually talking about tonight, where it's about decision making. It's to do with money or or collaboration with local communities, and the architect doesn't matter because the architect isn't trained because down the road knows as much as the architect because they haven't qualified under Reba one, two, or three. They've a complete you know, reaction um, on the value of uh, architectural training. Yeah. the most bizarre, like, job in the world where you can stay in it for, like, 10 years and you don't progress unless you go back to university. Like, I could be a part one for the next 10 years and I'd still be a part one. 
in Greece, you can be an architect and a civil engineer within four years, by the way, and the university is free. So move to Greece. Hi, good evening. My name's Alex. I'm not an architect. Um, um, I name it the complexity of architecture rather than the politics of architecture. I don't know how you, I don't know how you feel about that. Um, right, yeah, okay. Um, I like to, it's a really interesting talk, lots of really interesting, fascinating things, and it does tie in a little bit what I was going to say. Um, I live in St. in Bristol, and I would like to talk about Bristol, um, um, but not because I think what I'm saying is specific to Bristol, but just because I know that, that I know it slightly better. And, and there's been such a lot of great stuff said, and it's like, oh, no, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Oh, yeah, you're totally cool. Yeah, what the f planet are you on? What's that got to do with nothing with what's going on around me? It's like you're tripping or something. It's just a different story altogether, you know? It's like, it's like where's the connection, the reality between this community talk and all these high ideals and all this good stuff and, and the reality that I'm seeing on, in my community and what's going on? And just, there's just a disconnect there that is, you know, that is very profound and, and fundamental. So, so it, it, the first off, um, what, what I'm looking for, what I'd expect to come here after, the, after the, the pandemic, where we've all had this massive kind of, you know, like sort of rethink, is, is like to, to hear a really fundamentally radical scream, a demand from architects to say, we've had enough of this bullshit. We need, it needs to be different, and we're not having it the way it is anymore and you know and it's all, all this high density shit no one wants to live in high density no one wants no one wants to not have a balcony or a bit of garden or a bit of space or somewhere to put them who the fuck wants to live in, in a high density little 14 meter squared box it's bollocks it's you know and anyone who's making money knocking out that stuff is is you know is complicit and and like and and so it's st paul's we've been dominated as a student area now we've become a student ghetto because of the current circumstances, drug use is on the rise, the, the, the dr drug, um, drug activity is rising again, but, which is kind of clashing with the kind of, you know, but the, it, the whole area has just become a student ghetto and the only people that are building in the area, if you want to build, you have to borrow money. If you, borrow, if you want to borrow money, if you're poor, borrowing money is incredibly expensive, right? Poor people cannot afford to do developments and do things in their community. The only people that can come in and people borrow money from these big corporations and they can borrow money at 1.75% or 0.25% or whatever percentage it is, right? You know. Yeah, no, but even so, even so, George, it's still the same story. If you've got money, you can borrow cheap, right? And if you're poor, like, I just did a little project. I was borrowing at 50% on 49.9% some of the borrowing I was doing to complete my project. And then I couldn't get a mortgage at the end of it because the bank said, you know, you've got people living in the area and they say they're paying £1,000 a month rent and the banks say, no, you can't afford to have a mortgage for £750 a month. There are so many absolutely fundamental things that, that kind of, that I think we need to just be, you know, and that's not even touching on the environmental issues. And you know, and, and the, the you know the, the the green areas of the city, and the you know, so so I just think that, that I do like a lot of what I've heard, but I just think that there's there's something missing of this kind of like 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 we are architects and we are totally fucked off and we are not putting up we, and this is what we're saying really a really clear voice. You know, I think it just needs to be louder and clearer because I've got I've got a response just there. I was just going to say I think this is an example of in Bristol we've got really engaged, passionate people in the communities and I think we don't speak to them enough and I work in community engagement and I feel so often it's just a, a tick box or a hoop jumping exercise in the planning process and it needs to become more meaningful you know we're trying to engage people who don't like change as, as has been mentioned and um, but they're being engaged too late in the process you know where, where the, 
the, the plans have already been decided and what can they shape and the community-led stuff is great it is great but it's so, so little of what I do so I haven't experienced it and I think how do we make that more meaningful in the planning process you know how can we ingrain that in the process so instead of ticking a box it's meaningfully having those conversations with those communities who are so passionate and who want to see their communities turn out in a certain way and um, before they're seeing plans on a you know on the table and then having to comment on that um i mean i think that's yeah. something we'd all kind of go for it's whether people resource it and if they know how to do it which is a, a tricky thing sam are you gonna can yeah, i sorry i just feel like we haven't heard from so many voices yeah. Yeah. hi um so I'm new to Bristol, and I'm coming from 10 years of living in Berlin, and so I wanted to pick up on the comment about the models of what's happening elsewhere a little bit, um, and maybe give, uh, ask some questions, but also give my experience of um, watching the sort of German uh, social housing and what happened there, which um, what was referenced was the idea of the Baugruppe, which is a... Um, community-led housing schemes. So it could be anywhere from five uh, people that want to have their own apartments to 20 or 30, and they form a group, and then they find an architect and a piece of land, and they get really good uh, finance rates because they've managed to convince everyone that they're going to stay together long enough to build this building <laughs> and each own an apartment in it. And there are architects set up in Berlin, at least, that... Um, cater to just these sorts of groups and manage to um, communicate with them and build housing quickly without getting into infighting. <laughs> to build a building can't then just sell it immediately afterwards, which is one of the big complaints in Berlin is that we make affordable housing for people that are already privileged, and then they go on and speculate on it and end up getting a big profit. Um, another model that I find, but it does produce good ar architecture in the city, I think. It's one of the best ways to produce good architecture. Um, another model that is in Germany is called the Mietshäuser Syndicat, which is basically like a land cooperative. Um, and that is a model where people do not own the places that they live in, but instead uh, own shares of it and, own, and pay a rent that then goes to buy more land and more property to build better affordable housing that is kept at a very low market rate and it's actually affordable housing that stays in the system. And that's not governmental and in fact it's very anarchist in its own way. And what I'm curious about to learn here, what can happen, is what happens in, um, in Germany as well, and in particular a huge problem in Berlin, was that they uh, created social housing and then put a lease on it of 30 years, after which it was no longer, 30 no longer social housing and rolled over to development housing, which meant they could raise the rents as high as they wanted. And what I've heard about Bristol is that the social housing that gets built here gets used to then become um, uh, help to buy, basically. So it is similarly um, being led out of the system, which means there's a fundamental gap which will always need to be filled, which means there will always need to be new houses built for social housing. Um, so it's a leaky system, <laughs> um, but it, it fundamentally is supported by the general ideology of ownership, which exists in England as opposed to in Germany, which is more of a rental um, culture. And 
what I'm curious to find out is if there's not a way to um, keep the social money in the system longer, and does it mean moving over to cooperative systems that are outside of, outside of government hands, like the Mietzweiser Syndicate, or are there models here, like land trusts, um, that can actually continuously lead to a system for affordable housing? Because we have to actually stop building. We can't produce good architecture, nor can we produce good cities if we continue to, or solve climate crisis, if we continue to build large-scale developments. I am basically uh, do not think that that model can um, accommodate our current environmental and social problems of building at, at scale. Um, and instead, there has to be uh, other ways to communicate with people at the you know, the building scale, at least, would be my uh, <laughs> provocation to this discussion. Thank you. That is brilliant. Pippa, you were going to come back on something in there. Yeah, I was just going to come back on that because we do have a few examples of that, but very few in the UK. And we have one just outside Leeds called the Lilac Scheme, which some of you will be familiar with. And the architect who designed it is... If he's not in here, he's sitting on the terrace because he has an office upstairs and he's also doing a Norwest scheme. But that's a, that is a great model, and that, that's one of my fears with council housing, which I otherwise support, is we have a leaky system where, with the right to buy and with a kind of subsidised right to buy, we're constantly losing council housing. So, and I just wanted to pick up on you. I've been interested in that gerbil model, but there was also a lovely model to look at during the pandemic, which was La Borda in Barcelona. I don't know if any of you read about that, but it was a co-housing scheme and basically when they went into that hard lockdown they were in flats they were at high density but they had wonderful communal space inside the flats and the whole block of flats went into its own bubble and they uh, educated the children together they they so it was a, just a fantastic model that okay the pandemic was an extreme situation but but that model of housing was so resilient compared to our weird little atomized lives that we lead normally. I'll shut up now. Sam. Just trying to sort of tease a few things together here. Um, what Benedict has said about architecture and education, I can come with, I think, diversity within education. We need diversity in who designs our environment. You know, without that, it's going to become, you know, another homogenous agglomeration of white men, you know, doing stuff. You know, we can't carry on with that. So I think, you know, it's great teaching at UWE, much more diversity there, fantastic. You know, I think the other thing I'd say to the gentleman from St. Paul's is, um, you know, I come from a place, because I've given a lot of the waffle on this community-led nonsense, right, but basically in Brislington, where I live, there used to be the neighbourhood partnership, and the council supported neighbourhood partnerships, and that was an individual uh, by the council to come to communities and the voices of and so my involvement, I always say, that's what you preach, right? I sat in a lot of shit meetings in Brissington to try and get involved on the ground in different projects. And what I saw through the neighbourhood partnership was an ability to actually influence change really quite quickly. All of a sudden, you get the councillors turning and saying, oh, guys, um, there's sort of sale funding you can go for. Um, and I, I up and said, great. You know, we'll, we'll have £35,000. Um, we'll work with that group, that group, that group, that group. You've all got our Brissington, let's do a green trail, right? So they gave us £35,000, and we've then um, implemented that money. We've got 
This is on a high street now. We've got signs in the woodland that allows people to navigate their way through it. Um, Arnold's Fell Trust um, have linked together with another uh, green space in ways that didn't happen before. So I do believe that at a very local level, engaging with politics as architects is really important, and we can implement change quickly. So I like that, okay? And, and I do believe that we can have a voice. And I think the important thing is getting more voices into that. And everybody's right, you know. It is difficult to get people um, that need to be represented, uh, heard. But what I say is it does come down to the processes that we have as architects and the training we've experienced. So when I was at university, who was a bit radical, and Steve was talking about as well, implemented the live projects, meet with real, real clients with real issues. You know, not just our sort of conscious waffle in the studio about oh what would Sartre say about my facade you know it was wicked and um, in doing that I think it it forced us and me in a formative stage of my career to realise we need to change the way we language things how we draw things what we write what we say what we do in order that we can have meaningful discursive um, impact in our community so I think education has a massive role for that in architecture um, and it's about the time which we, as architects, choose to engage. I mean, I didn't enter the Royal Homes competition for Castle Park because it talked about being a community-led project. And nobody put um, forward a process. If, if we'd have gone for that, we'd have said, here was a process for the project for community engagement, not here was a product to go and consult upon. You know? And I feel as though it's so important that the stage at which we get involved with local people is better understood. It's not do something, show them it. It's go and ask them something and then think about it. Thank you. That was a great roundup, but we have got... <laughs> I just want to ask a colleague over there. Hi, it's Zainab. Um, I just wanted to get back to the same point of uh, politics of education. Um, just from my experience, I've studied architecture back home in Sudan. And, which was like a few years ago. And then I did my master's in Bath, uh, sustainability in sustainability. It's quite difficult to work as an architect in the UK. It's one of the most difficult things. I now work as a sustainability consultant. I just did the master to know more and use that knowledge as an architect, not to work as a sustainability consultant. And I'm now trying to get back to that route, but Everyone, like let me tell you, everyone is telling me to not get back to that word because they are saying it's so difficult, it costs a lot. I've done my part one, which is like I had to pay a fortune to do it. It was, it took like around a lot of my time. And now like everyone that I've spoken to, all the architects that I know have changed their profession. They work as consultants, sustainability consultants and they are telling me to not get back to that. So it would be really good to have a talk about that because especially for international um, people, architects who have studied abroad and are trying to add something and to work here um, because it's just crazy how the amount of people who can't work as architects and who are changing their professions and who can do their part two and part three in the country. Um, so I just wanted to <laughs> express how difficult it is. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, we've heard that from around the room. That's uh, yeah. obviously a really important 
and rather sad way that architecture is developing and the education is kind of pushing the, sy pushing the system in that way. Yeah. George, you look like you're about to say something, but we're going to be finishing up in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I could have... Oh, my goodness, suddenly now. I haven't heard from you, sir, so perhaps... Um, yeah, if you could just pass the mic along, 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 along. Hi. Um, we talked about quite a lot of nuanced things and quality of design and that sort of thing, but just to go back into politics and architecture, can we go back to the thing that drives development, which is the cost of a piece of land when it's farmland and the cost of land when it's got planning permission? And I don't think we're going to get any meaningful change until we get 100% land tax and then that tax being used to put the infrastructure in, just as it was with new towns before... Um, CPO thing fell apart, um, so that the, there is some direction and some management of the whole, the whole process and that the, the profit from that process can be reinvested in communities rather than shipped off to shareholders. I ask for very short contributions, I'm going to hold the mic so I can take it away. I was only going to say um, RBA elections are coming up and there's a candidate who is an architectural worker who we should all vote for rather than someone who owns a practice and then we might see some change in the architectural education. That would be great. Okay, two here. George. All I was going to say is we've got to be really careful with the language and I think what you said about St Paul's, a lot of our language is not, um, is not adjusted to the general population. And when we talk about high density, people think about high buildings. They don't think about Paris or Barcelona or Clifton or, uh, or Easton. They're high and they're communities. So I think we've got to be really careful about the language. A threat. If thoughtful architecture, which could be good modern architecture, they're more accepting. So I think to learn our language from people who are not obsessed with architecture. Thank you. I, I will be very quick. Um, um, I, I think it's incredibly sad that the architectural profession has handed over the... Um, role of what they used to do when I first worked in the industry as a landscape architect of project management and I don't think project I think architects should have hung on to that role of project management because they did it brilliantly I don't think that the project managers that we have today do a very good job of it call out for some good project managers, probably ex-architects, or they've done their part one. But if you want to move into something, I think there's some advice there. Uh, there's so many themes. So education had so much on housing, and planning, obviously, has been at the very centre of it. I'm glad that we got to looking at finance to some extent. No answers there, I'm afraid. Um, but um, it's been really fascinating hearing so many contributions if you haven't contributed yet, come to the bar and chat to somebody you don't know. Um, thank you to you all uh, for all the things we've heard, uh, particularly to Sam, Paul, uh, Jules and Christiana. 
Uh, thanks to Full Spate for a, a great concept. I think the Corona Get Talks are, uh, should be taking off all over the place, if, if that's allowed. Um, <clears throat> and to Design West for hosting us here in The Architect. Uh, enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.